0: This is Business Impact, a podcast series from UCD College of Business, Ireland's leading business school. I'm your host, Emmett Oliver, and each episode I'll be joined by world-renowned faculty from across the College of Business, as well as international industry leaders who offer us insight, spark curiosity, and challenge you to rethink how you do business in a changing world. It is indeed that time of the year when thousands of us will jet off on holidays and we feel at least after COVID that is our entitlement. Some other people would disagree with that and say because of the environmental damage that the aviation sector can and does do that we need to take a long hard look at the amount of flying we do, where we do it to and the kind of aircraft we're on board when we do that flying and that is going to become more and more into focus whether we like it or not, over the next few years, as Ireland in particular struggles to meet its emission targets and as do many other countries as well. So can aviation be saved from the changes of climate change? Can it be truly sustainable in the next five to ten years amid a background where decarbonisation is being demanded by citizens and governments all around the world? Where does the aviation industry and the travel and logistics industry as to more widely fit into that picture? And today's guest on Business Impact knows quite a lot about this area. He's Academic Director of the MSC at Aviation Finance here at the UCD Business School, and he is Associate Professor of Banking and Finance. And his name is Tom Conlon. You're very welcome to the podcast, Tom. Morning, Emmis. I have to do a holiday special at this time of the year, and we'll all be getting on planes, some of us on boats, but mainly on planes. And even those who aren't on a plane or a boat will be getting into a car. So we're all producing carbon in some form or other. So there's a huge focus on all of these industries, but particularly aviation, because it is so visual, people feel very strongly, and does interconnect so many disparate parts of the world that in its own right is as important and moves a lot of our goods as well, of course, not just people. Can you give me a bit of an idea of the big picture at the moment? Where is aviation at? Uh, Where does it fit into the emissions picture? And what kind of things are going on to try and ameliorate the position? The big picture in terms of aviation,
1: the number that we need to remember is one gigaton. Aviation produces about one gigaton of, of emissions. And if you go back to the, the recent Bill Gates book on decarbonization, he keeps mentioning this number of 50 gigatons. So in those terms, aviation accounts for about 2% of overall emissions. Now, that doesn't sound particularly substantial. But if you start to think about the fact that only about 5 to 10% of the world's population flies in any given year... Um, this becomes much more of an issue. So this 5 to 10% of the population are accounting for about 2% of emissions just coming from, from aviation. Um, developed countries tend to account for a much bigger proportion of total CO2. Um, if we look at Europe, for example, um, of the total CO2 that's emitted uh, across Europe, aviation accounts for about 4%. Um, the issue in many ways is that developing countries are uh, catching up, they're catching up very rapidly, and they're expected to continue to catch up as time moves on. Um, IATA, uh, which is the, the trade body for airlines, have forecast that there's going to be more than a, a doubling of passenger numbers by 2050, and that much of this doubling will come from developing countries. So the, the issue here is that if aviation doesn't begin to, to decarbonize, it's it's sort of relatively easy to see a situation where Um, the aviation industry, the commercial aviation industry, um, accounts for about 10% of global emissions by 2050. That's a very substantial number.
0: Yes, and and I suppose the the obvious thing, we're we're so used to the revolution in e-vehicles in terms of cars, and there's been a lot done getting diesel vehicles off the road. So a lot of people think, well, why can't we just translate that form of progress into the skies and get... And the ordinary kerosene fuel that has been powering jet fuel or jet planes for many decades out of the system and replace it with better and more environmentally friendly biofuels. That sort of would seem the way to go. But due to aerodynamics and physics, things aren't quite as simple as that. Can you explain to our listeners just the complexities of how air travel happens and how planes move through the sky that makes it a lot more difficult?
1: A bit of background that might help there as well is that the and this body then, Thomas, this um, uh, trade body for airlines, IATA, have committed to zero emissions by 2050 um, lots of airlines have committed to zero emissions by 2050 so there is a, a will to do this and to achieve this, um, but as you say, it's a real challenge in aviation to, to try to decarbonize you know w- one thing that people say a, on a regular basis is, um, why don't you just fly less? You know flying less will be the obvious way to get to to net zero um but you're going to struggle to get support for that. You know, aviation itself directly supports the economy. Um, in Europe, it accounts for about 2.1% of GDP. That's about 500 billion euro. Um, it creates about 5 million jobs. Now, that's just the, the direct impact of aviation. Um, that doesn't take into account the indirect uh, effects of aviation, so such as for tourism, for example. So it's a really big con- contributor to, to uh, economic growth. Um, the second issue, then, is that... Whether this is right or wrong, the share price of airlines is a a function of the growth in the industry. So, if you're looking at any of the listed airlines, Ryanair, EasyJet, Lufthansa, um, KLM, all of those airlines, their share price depends upon this expected future growth. So, they're not going to be particularly keen to decarbonize in that sense. So, what's happening in the background is we're starting to see policymakers begin to commit to play. So, Europe, the European Commission, through the, the taxonomy, are proposing to to limit growth in aviation. But the the suggestions that they're making might potentially have limited impact because there could be sort of international imbalances that we might see. Your question then is, how can it be done? Now, it is challenging. Aviation is, by its nature, a very energy-intensive business. Um, It requires a very dense form of energy. And if you were creating a a fuel for aviation, jet fuel is that fuel. It's perfect for, for aviation. Um, so we're looking for ways of trying to replace this jet fuel, find some kind sort of a substitute for it. So there's three different ways that the industry should be able to, to decarbonize. Um, technology is one of them, and you refer to this, what might happen in terms of what our airplanes going to look like. Um, we have offsetting. So this refers to uh, finding ways of, while still producing uh, carbon emissions, uh, offsetting those emissions in turn, um, and then fuels the different types of fuels that we might be able to use in terms of getting those aircraft into the sky. And um, from technological perspective, we can think of uh, a few different things here. We have incremental changes. So the incremental changes that we see in terms of technology are things like winglets. You've probably seen those winglets on the on the aircraft, You know those little um, turn-ups mm. at the end of the wing. Um, when they were introduced, it was shown that they... Um, improved fuel efficiency by about 4%.
0: They break up wind resistance, right? They, they kind of slice through the air, essentially, right?
1: Exactly, exactly. So what we see is there, there are a number of different um, incremental changes like that that will make percentage changes in terms of the, the amount of fuel that is required by an aircraft. That's not going to get us to, to net zero by itself. Um, we have operational changes. So you mentioned things like airports, for example, um, you know, so if we were to introduce electric taxiing, so where instead of um, aircraft having to put on their engines in order to make it out to the runway, they're going to be pulled out by uh, some kind of electric vehicle. That'll help. You know, you don't have the engines running for mm. as long. You're you're um, consuming less energy. Um, you might also have better air traffic control. So air traffic control right now, particularly in Europe, is very congested. And it, it tends to be advertised as not particularly efficient so if you were to introduce proper operational constraints on it perhaps there's a, um, efficiencies that you can get from that as well now in both of those cases so incremental changes operational changes we're not going to ever get to net zero it's going to make maybe you know small percentile changes in terms of the amount of emissions what we're really um, thinking about is radical changes And the radical changes that have been proposed are twofold. The first of those is hydrogen. So hydrogen-powered aircraft have been proposed by Airbus. Um, Airbus are saying that they will have a a commercial jet in the sky by 2035. There'll be passengers flying on this by 2035. In fact, um, Airbus seem to be putting all of their money behind hydrogen. That seems to be their uh, approach to decarbonization. What's interesting is that Boeing aren't buying into this. Boeing are, in fact, saying that uh, this won't be the future of aviation. So we're seeing this sort of a a clash between the two giants. And what what are Boeing, what's their strategy then in in, in contrast? Boeing are are talking about sustainable aviation fuels as being the the predominant driver. So I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in a moment and and how that works. Um, With with hydrogen itself, Mm -hmm. the problem with hydrogen is the, the volume of hydrogen to be carried. So in order to replicate what we currently get in terms of a, a an aircraft fueled by jet fuel and um, if you're to do it with hydrogen you're going to have to have a much larger aircraft so you, you you're talking about a much bulkier potentially heavier aircraft in order to carry this um, extra volume and with less passengers presumably and baggage potentially with less with less passengers as well and um, so what they're trying to do is find ways of compressing the hydrogen you know compressing it as much as possible so that it's not going to increase the the bulk the other option then is electric. So, where everyone sees, you know, we're talking about electrifying cars, motorcycles, trucks, perhaps. Um, with electric, in terms of aviation, the, the issue is weight rather than volume. Um, batteries are extremely heavy. So, these batteries that you're going to have to carry through uh, taking off, through landing, through the time that you're, you're cruising in the sky, they don't reduce in, in uh, weight. Um, if you think about jet fuel, jet fuel gets exhausted as the aircraft gets closer and closer to its end, but the the weight of these batteries won't be exhausted; it'll still be there, and you're going to have to carry that all the way through. So, again, another problem in terms of electric. It looks unlikely right now that electric is going to really be part of the, the puzzle, and and the reason for that is that the technology just isn't there uh, to allow us to get the um, amount of the dense amount of energy that we require. In order for aircraft to be able to take off what we are seeing is these smaller aircraft being discussed and um, so these might be aircraft that can carry maybe four to eight people um, and by 2050 it's unlikely that we're going to see commercial aircraft that can take a hundred maybe 150 people which we're we're used to now that are flying using electricity so the next thing that's available to us is offsetting um offsetting effectively refers to Paying others to reduce emissions uh, in your stead, or alternatively, finding ways to to store carbon.
0: And we're most familiar with the, with the tree planting, right? A lot of people, a lot of people do personal offsetting and, and go and plant a tree or get someone to plant a tree for them. So, exactly, exactly, and, and that's that's one way of
1: doing it. But it's not the it's not the only way of doing it. You know, another example might be funding uh, a wind farm in India, um, where an airline goes and and provides cash to Uh, this wind farm that wouldn't happen if they didn't get this cash and it results in a a reduction in the emissions in India that wouldn't happen otherwise. That's really important, the fact that it wouldn't happen otherwise. That's the only way you're actually offsetting the emissions that are being created by aviation. Uh, The difficulty with with offsetting is that it it really suffers from credibility issues. Um, So let's take an example, EasyJet, a well-known European airline, um, EasyJet came out in 2019 and said they're going to start to offset all of their emissions. So they're offsetting these emissions at a price of three pounds per tonne. Sounds great. Sounds like the, the, way, the way to do it. Why, why not just do this with all emissions? Um, but carbon emissions, if you if you look at the, the traded price of carbon emissions, so it is an, uh, an asset that trades um, and it trades at 60 euro per tonne. So what's the difference? What's going on here? Why are, are EasyJet able to offset at three pounds where while the European trading system is saying that the actual price is 60 euro per tonne. So it does bring some level of, of scrutiny to the, the quality of the offsetting that's happening. And um, a lot of these offsets are accredited as well. But this, this accreditation industry for offsetting is quite nascent. And we don't know again about the quality of that.
0: You mentioned fuel sources, alternatives, you have obviously mentioned hydrogen. As an alternative. What about other possible biofuel type sources? And there are a range of them there. Is there any positive, potential positive news in the, in using those as, as alternatives to kerosene? In my view, um, sustainable aviation fuels,
1: which includes biofuel as, as part of it, are really the, the key to decarbonisation. That's how we're going to get to, to net zero. Um, the current generations of SAF, sustainable aviation fuel, uh, that helps to reduce roughly between 60 and 80% of emissions. And what's really important is that these are drop-in fuels. It means that the, the aircraft can just take, as it's currently equipped, can take these um, sustainable aviation fuels. We don't have to change anything in terms of technology. We also don't have to change any of the infrastructure in the airports to be able to take it. If we're moving to hydrogen, an awful lot of different factors. Well, that's good. Yeah, sure. But the, the problem right now is that um, SAF can currently provide only um, probably less than 1% of current demand. So we don't have the scale there uh, to allow us to be able to replace current jet fuel with this.
0: Well, that's, a, that's capacity, right, which is big, right? But if you had proof of concept, at least, and that was absolutely, you know, everyone was happy with that part, you can then roll out the, the capacity in the factories and so on. The proof of concept is there. OK. Most
1: modern jet engines are... Um, already approved to take, I think, fifty percent uh, sustainable aviation fuels, and they're they're trying to push that up as time goes on. So the technology works, and we know it works, but it doesn't reduce all emissions. It only reduces roughly sixty to eighty percent of emissions. So we're not going to again get to net zero using this. The way around it is um, a future technology. Future technology um, includes things like power to liquid. So this would effectively involve. It's quite clever. It involves. Taking um, carbon from the atmosphere. So carbon capture to take this, this carbon out of the atmosphere and then convert this to a liquid fuel using renewable energy. Um, the, the technology is really coming on, um, but it again isn't available at scale just yet. Does that remove all carbon or that that, that is a zero carbon solution? Okay. If if it works, because your factory, you're effectively taking this carbon out of the atmosphere. And then when it goes
0: up into the sky and it uh, emits again, it's putting the same carbon back into the atmosphere. And in terms of carrying this stuff, I mean, what does what does the plane look like that would have this attached to it in the tanks? Are we are we back to these small planes? Or no, no, we're, did, an aircraft that's using this. This
1: is um, a drop-in fuel again.
0: So it's saying, they should like for like, essentially, we don't have to change
1: the the technologies in order for this to to happen. The challenge, though, I think, with something like like power to liquid is that we're going to be competing with other demands for renewable energy. Like we we hear in Ireland at the moment how challenged we are in terms of electricity. Can you imagine you were to put um, aircraft additionally onto this as another draw on our electricity uh, supplies? Um, So competing with other renewable technologies like renewable cars, for example. Again, it's another issue, something that hasn't been overcome. But in spite of all these challenges, in my view, anyway, um, SAF is the most effective way to decarbonize aviation uh, without necessarily, as I say, requiring a a huge phase change in terms of of aviation. Um, But the reality is it's going to require all parties to contribute. We need the airlines involved. We need the lessors involved. We need the um, manufacturers involved, the engine
0: manufacturers, the aircraft manufacturers, and we need the oil and gas companies to, to start to get involved in it. So just, just to be absolutely precise on this, are you saying that in about, and I'm just picking this number out of the air for the, sake of, for the sake of the argument, is in 20 years time, say, or 25 years time, we could have a fleet of aircraft flying through the air using this power to liquid um, technology. They wouldn't be, they, they would essentially be carbon zero or net zero and they would be able to fly roughly carrying the same kind of capacity and the, the same sector lengths or journey lengths as we currently have from like you're are you saying conceptually that can be done we we'll leave the economics for a moment yeah conceptually it can be done okay
1: we're not there yet and we're, we have a long way to go but if you look at IATA's uh, path to net zero, they're suggesting that about 80% of the decarbonisation by 2050 will come from the use of sustainable aviation fuels.
0: Yeah. I mean, I presume we could fill out the rest with the offsetting or the other technology. And pr- like e- You'll have all of these things going at once, right? That, that's the hope. That's the hope. But to get to there, to get from less than
1: 1% to 80% over that 28-year uh, period is an immense challenge.
0: It is indeed. I mean, let, let's leave the fuels aside and the offsetting and the technology improvements, etc. Talk about it from a passenger point of view. Uh, first of all, when we live in Ireland, yes, there are you can get boats off this island. There's probably not enough to get us all off at the time we want, but it can be done. Um, maybe Boris Johnson will get his famous tunnel that's going to go between Northern Ireland and Scotland. But leaving those aside, we're going to still need to get off this island using um, aviation in some form, so I suppose the question is what what kind of from a passenger point of view what does the future of aviation look like? It sounds like putting everything that you've said today on this podcast together, it sounds like we're talking smaller planes. It sounds like we're talking different type of airport experience, and it sounds like and I hate to say this for people who like to travel a lot. It sounds like we're going to be talking about much more expensive ticket prices is that what you would envisage in terms of the passenger experience when you put all these different things you're talking about together? Yeah, I, I don't see
1: huge changes, um, huge phase changes in terms of the, the technology, the aircraft. You know, the, the, the current generation of aircraft, the uh, the NEO aircraft are going to be around for another 20, 25 years. Uh, they've only just come out in the last three, four years. So they're, they're going to be there. It's going to be, there's going to be no change really in that. Um, in terms of airports very hard to say that maybe the, hopefully there'll be some optimization um but i don't know if it's going to affect decarbonization directly uh, but pricing is, is the key one in order for this to happen somebody is going to have to pay for it and the problem with sustainable aviation fuels right now is that they cost multiples of the price of um traditional aviation fuels. so you, you could be talking two to three times the cost of, of traditional aviation fuels that's going to impact upon the the revenues of the airlines. Airlines won't want that to happen. So they're going to have to increase ticket prices in order to be able to
0: pay for this. And this is obviously an airline issue specifically we're talking about, but does it hand an advantage to rival transport forms like trains, like boats, helicopters, bicycles, whatever you want to talk about? Does, does it hand, hand a bit of an advantage to kind of sectors that have been kind of the poor relation to aviation for a long time? Does it sort of equal that feel up a bit, do you think?
1: It, it definitely does. Um, and it definitely creates, um, I think, more of a, a demand for other, other forms of transport. And I suppose trains is the one to, to point out. Um, the, the French, French government, um, as part of their bailout of Air France KLM, um, one of the criteria that they put in there was that flights that were less than, I can't remember if it was one to two hours, and um, would be replaced by high-speed um, uh, trains. So they're, they're saying, look, why do we have these aircraft up there emitting um, when they're accounting for, yeah, probably uh, only a small proportion of emissions, but we we have an obvious way of getting rid of, rid of these emissions. Now, in saying that, the vast majority of emissions come from medium to long uh, haul flights. So you're looking at 70 to 80% of emissions are coming from these, these longer haul flights. So that's more of the concern if you're trying to work on the the um, the low hanging fruit in terms of the sector.
0: Yeah, you ta- you take out more of the long holders and leave the short holders, right? That would be if you were just to take a blunt blunt approach. And if you're if you're looking at it in terms of a um,
1: a demand side of things, there have been proposals that have come out by meaningful parties suggesting that we should be limiting the amount of business class travel to 2019 levels. We should be limiting the amount of long haul travel to 2019 levels it's difficult to see how they're going to regulate that but perhaps that will happen
0: yeah and it's difficult to, depending where you're located on the globe uh, if you're living in ireland you might think that's a great idea living in australia or new zealand you might not be so keen because uh, where you are located so it does disadvantage people geographically um it, it, that's definitely a consideration. Now, all of this work is fascinating. And, and I think you're being humble enough to say we don't know precisely the route we're going to follow. If we did, there wouldn't be people like yourself researching and lecturing in this area, I suppose. And, and that brings in the UCD connection. Can you give us a little bit of an idea of, of where UCD fits into this story? You're doing a lot of work in this area and it's a fascinating area. So just explain the UCD role. UCD
1: and particularly the UCD School of Business are uh, very much committed to supporting and to, to working with the aviation industry, um, especially the leasing industry, which is so critical in Ireland um, in accelerating decarbonisation. Um, so, in addition to to our focus on this in our MSC Aviation Finance, so this is something. This is a uh, this um, role of sustainability has become a bigger part of all of the modules that our students are undertaking. But we're also heavily involved in thought leadership within this space. Um, UCD became a a member of IMPACT last year uh, and I've joined the the IMPACT team as a scientific advisor. So what what is IMPACT? IMPACT is a a non-profit group which is trying to promote sustainability in aviation Um, and we're trying to do this through innovation and through carbon reduction. Um, The members of IMPACT consist of leading banks, lessors, uh, service providers, universities, so companies like Castle Lake, HSBC, KPMG, uh, Natixis, uh, MUFG, for example. These are some of the the members of of Impact. So real um, heavy-hitting names in the world of banking and and of aviation. There's a number of things that Impact are trying to achieve and that we as UCD are trying to achieve while working with Impact. Um, So one of these is trying to understand or measure sustainability what uh, are the metrics that we need in order to, to, to understand the, the scale of the problem that we're dealing with. What surprises most people is that a, only a small number of airlines are actually reporting their carbon emissions. And even those that do report their carbon emissions are not doing it in a standardized format. So it's really difficult for us to get a, um, a very strong quantitative understanding of the emissions that are, that are being produced by aviation. That's a big challenge. What we're hoping to do is to try and tie in um, the cost of financing. So, if you're if you're getting money to buy an aircraft or to finance your your airline more generally, you can put in caveats um, into that loan agreement. And those uh, clauses in the loan agreement would say that if you manage to reduce your emissions, we'll give you a, a lower cost of borrowing. What we're trying to do is is come up with ways of doing this. How do we um, start to come up with standards and, and the core characteristics that are associated with uh, transition finance. Um, so, that's a, that's a big challenge in itself. There is some um, background or some um, comparisons with other industries which have been reasonably successful in doing this. But because uh, right now it's very difficult to decarbonize aviation, there's no obvious um, uh, way of just copying over what's being done in other industries. So that gives you a sense of what we're doing. You know, we're we're very much involved in decarbonisation. We want to make sure that our, our students are coming out with a, a really good grounding and understanding of what decarbonisation of aviation involves, but also that they're aware of the the challenges that are involved in decarbonising aviation.
0: Yeah, and I, th- I don't think most passengers know the kind of um, carbon footprint they have themselves. I mean, I had a group of students who shall remain nameless and the module shall remain nameless. But I asked them to reflect a little bit on their own carbon footprint and they all undervalued it and and thought it was much lower. And then you you added in the long haul flights, particularly to the Australia's and New Zealand type places, which a lot of students do do. Suddenly they were kind of eye opened about their own carbon footprints. Obviously everyone over the last two and a half years has had much lower because of COVID-19 pandemic. So maybe the last few years have not been typical, but I think we all don't have a sense of the carbon footprint we're producing via things like travel—it's it, it, sort of not necessarily always top of mind.
1: I think even the airlines don't necessarily know about the uh, precisely the amount of carbon emissions that they're they're producing. Um, it's not something that's measured directly. The way that they go about it is they they measure the amount of fuel that they're using, and there's effectively a multiplier. You multiply the the quantity of fuel by three point one six in order to understand the amount of carbon emissions that the the airline is is producing. Now, that's fine. That's something we can measure reasonably simply. What we haven't talked about today are the other forms of emissions that aviation is responsible for. Um, There's other gases that are produced, such as NOx gases, for example, Um, and aviation is also responsible for contrails. So you know when you see an airplane flying overhead uh, coming from the tail of that aircraft, Will be two plumes of of uh, what look like clouds. That's the, the contrails that come from it. Contrails have been have been linked with increased global warming as well. Um, so we're not dealing with that necessarily right now, and, and we're we're looking at if you look at the other forms of emissions that come from aviation, the, the total um, contribution to global warming from aviation becomes uh, much much larger. It could be anything from four to six percent. Of, of total contribution to um, to global warming. And thinking about the fact, again, that it's only 5 to 10% of people who are actually flying uh, annually, this is a, a really significant and important number.
0: And, and you also have, um, obviously, military aviation, which is a huge sector. There are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of fighter jets in the sky that are presume, presumably on jet fuel as well. Absolutely,
1: you know, there's, there's lots of sectors that we're, we're probably not even in uh, taking into account here. So military, um, private jets. You know, we 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 hear that this is a, a very much a growing uh, space over the last number of years. Um, people who have the means have, to an extent, stopped flying on public aircraft or um, commercial aircraft, and they want to use private jets. Uh, there was an article, I think, in the maybe in the FT yesterday. I was saying exactly that, that uh, there's this. That there aren't enough uh, private jets to go around at the moment.
0: Now, Tom, I was uh, terribly rude at the start. I didn't introduce you fully. You, before you came into academia, you worked in the whole area of asset management. Tell me a little bit about your earlier career. And I'll, I'll then tell the viewers or the listeners why we want to know about your earlier career. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, yeah, before I, I joined UCD, I worked
1: in um, quantitative finance. So quantitative finance refers to building... Essentially, mathematical models to try and understand what's happening in financial markets. And the way that you apply that is you try to come up with estimated valuations for mm-hmm. assets. So, take a stock. You can look at, a, at the price of a stock by looking at lots of different characteristics of that stock. And then you can get these characteristics to tell you is the stock overvalued or undervalued at the moment? So, the, the last role that I held was as a portfolio manager. Um, of a, a hedge fund. It was a market neutral hedge fund, where we were trying to identify good stocks, stocks that you should buy. We were trying to identify stocks that were poor stocks. They're ones that you should sell or short sell. And by, by doing that, you're effectively earning the uh, the difference between these long and short stocks. Um, and this, this was reasonably successful. You know, In 2008, when the market was down uh, about, about 35%, uh, we were up about 3% on the year. So our models worked. Models um, were able to identify good versus bad stocks.
0: Yeah, and, and one of the companies you worked for was Iiu, I believe, which is associated with Dermot Desmond. So quite a well-known company in the Dublin IFSC area. Absolutely. Yeah. Um. You know, I suppose they're they're
1: in many ways uh, attributed as being the the founding partners in the IFSC. So IFSC House being the the kind of leading light of the IFSC and. Um, the the concept of the International Financial Services Center has been attributed to, to Dermot
0: Desmond, who's the uh, the founder of
1: of i uh,
0: i u Yeah, and one of the reasons I, I mentioned quantitative finance because your your role is very interesting because you obviously have that background and you've got a strong mastery over over those kind of figures and regressions and statistical analysis. But what you also have had to do, I'm sure, in this aviation role you have now is get into the engineering, you know, get into how planes operate. And as you've been very eloquently discussing how the different fuel sources, how efficient they are or not efficient, et cetera. So I say you've had to bolt on a whole separate set of skills that you, you had onto your earlier skill set. To, to, to an extent. Um, I, I
1: actually came from a, a physics undergraduate.
0: Okay, <laughs> <That's>, that helps.
1: <laughs> it, it definitely does help. But, you know, I think the, the engineering side of, of aviation, it, it definitely is a, a world of its own. And to, uh, to really get an understanding of it, you, you need to have that background. But what's interesting is within our MSc in aviation finance, every year we get um, a small proportion, maybe four or five students who have come from that background. So they want to move into finance, but they've come from um, an aeronautical engineering background and uh, they want to make that move into the, the business world rather than the, the hard engineering world.
0: Now, the final question I'm going to ask you about is more technical. So it is a challenge for you to try and uh, condense this one down. But I know you've been doing some very interesting research on how we talk about fuel, but how airlines hedge their fuel. What they essentially do is they buy ahead and they hope to second guess the market and get their fuel sources at a at a cheaper price than the prevailing market or spot rate that's out there. Can you give us a little bit of idea? And as I said, it's, it's, a, it's a complex technical area, but can you give us some idea of your current research, uh, what it's about on fuel hedging? Absolutely. So
1: I'm doing some work with um, a PhD student, uh, Min Chao, where we're we're looking at this idea of of hedging aviation exposures in terms of jet fuel. Um, When you think about airlines, the main cost, probably the the largest cost for airlines is their fuel costs. That's about 30% of their operating expenses. And jet fuel in the last year is up by about over 100%, about 130%, which is going to put severe pressure on airlines who haven't actually hedged it. Um, But some are partially hedged against this. Ryanair, for example, have hedged about 80% of their fuel costs at, I think it's $63 a barrel out to February 23. Now, when oil is at $120 a barrel, this gives them a a nice strategic advantage over those airlines that aren't hedged, such as Whiz Air, for example. But even for those airlines who are actually hedged, there's still a considerable issue. Uh, There's no direct financial contract available, which allows companies to hedge jet fuel. Um, so what companies tend to do is to cross hedge. So they use uh, contracts such as crude oil or heating oil contracts to remove this risk. Now, it's, it's imperfect. Previous research has shown that it removes maybe 60 to 70 percent of the, um, the, the fluctuations. That's not enough. You know, compared to other asset classes, that is really poor. So what we've done is introduced a, a new novel method to do this. Um, And we're able to get a performance which is about 5 to 10% better than these traditional methods. And what we're we're proposing to do, and this is under review in um, an academic journal at the moment, uh, is to use two different contracts uh, with different underlying drivers to hedge jet fuel risk. Sounds like a very incremental change, but nobody had ever considered this before. Um, So, for example, the the best combination that we found is uh, using futures on Brent crude oil plus heating oil. What's happening is that Brent is capturing the trend in crude oil, so the upward or downward trend, and heating oil then reflects the the refined products. Refined products tend to work slightly differently than the underlying crude oil. Uh, So it helps to get rid of, for example, weather-related problems. Um, Then we we build on this in a number of ways. We have these uh, so-called mimicking portfolios where we include uh, maybe four to five different hedging instruments And again, we find another about 5% increase in hedging effectiveness through doing this.
0: And can I ask you, um, Tom, uh, why has nobody in the industry, not that I'm (laughs) again saying your work, but uh, why has nobody in the industry spotted this combination of tools before this? Yeah, I guess it's it's possibly
1: not that obvious. This this idea of composite hedging has been used to an extent in other uh, areas, maybe for interest rates, for example, where you don't have direct interest rate contracts. Um, But I don't think it's something that
0: has been looked at in the jet fuel um, area before. Are you Um, expecting a call from Michael O'Leary in the next few months? or Do you want to give your mobile number out? We'll we'll gladly take a call from Michael if he wants to to (laughs) have a look at your figures. Uh, Unfortunately, I can't explore it any further because we're a bit under time pressure, but it sounds fascinating and good luck with the paper. And it'll be really interesting to see, does the industry take a little peek at what you and your partner have been doing on that research? So well done on that. That is the voice you've been hearing of Tom Conlon. He is an assistant professor of banking and finance here at the UCD Business School, an academic director, more appropriately or more um, relevant in the context of this podcast, of the MSC in aviation finance. It is the summer. Lots of people will be getting on planes. They'll At least if they do nothing after hearing this podcast, they'll think a little bit more about the implications of that. And they'll also get to think about what it'll look like in five or 10 years' time when they get on that plane, whether it'll be bigger, smaller, faster, thinner, or have a different fuel source in the tanks. Thank you very much, Tom, for coming on the podcast today.
1: Thank you, Emma.
0: Now, if you enjoyed this week's episode of the UCD Business Impact Podcast, please subscribe to episodes on Apple Podcasts our Spotify. We cover a broad range of topics with insights from business leaders around the world. So there's sure to be something there for everyone. I'd like to thank our production team of David Kors-Cadden, Ed Gormley and Mike Liffey. They work tirelessly in the background sourcing interviewees, editing, promoting episodes and everything in between. I've been your host, Emmett Oliver, and we hope you can join us next time on UCD Business Impact.